everyone to Sources, Kana Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Ellison, your host. In this episode, I interview Kana Academy's co-founder and president, Andrew Zorneman, on the occasion of the publication of his latest work, History, Forgotten and Remembered. Andrew has been reflecting for some time on how to help teachers meet the challenges of teaching history in the current culture. This book is his attempt to meet those challenges head on and offer some helpful answers. I conducted the interview from my home in San Antonio, Texas. Andrew spoke from the headquarters for Cana Academy in Falls Church, Virginia. Andrew, congratulations on the new book. Um, our listeners should know, of course, that uh, I, I actually read it when it was in galley form, uh, gave you some edits. I uh, had a chance to, to give some feedback, uh, for which you, uh, I, I appreciate your mentioning me and the acknowledgments at the at the very end. Um, you know, uh, that, this is kind of a new thing, a new publication for Cana Academy. Uh, you and your fellow master teachers at Cana have published over fifty practical guides. Uh, for the classroom, guides on uh, a great work of literature, uh, works of philosophy, um, guides that help teachers practically lead a great discussion uh, on these wonderful works. Uh, but the book History Forgotten Remembered uh, is something of a detour uh, for, for you and for Kena Academy. Uh, why this book? Why right now? Well, thanks for the question and, and thanks for your help on the book too. Your editing was superb. And uh, the listener should also know that you've written two exceptionally good guides on uh, Plato's Mino and Sophocles' Oedipus the King. You can get those at the King Academy shop. We, we have been talking about history for some time within the, the circle at King Academy. We've, we've traveled the country. We work with about a thousand teachers now over the last four years. And there's a recurring set of questions that keep popping up. And um, the quest, some of the questions are very practical. How do you construct a good lecture? How do you organize a unit of history? Very, very down in the weeds kind of practical things. But some of the questions tended towards um, concerns about the culture in which we're teaching history right now. It has a lot to do with uh, a, a fairly widespread and mounting disparaging of America and of the West a loss of confidence in uh, our our cultural heritage, um, a, a general lack of experience. I mean, fewer and fewer students are actually studying history at the university level. So it's interesting. The the more I work with uh, younger teachers, I you know I get older every year, and the new crop of teachers come up, and they they seem to be you know younger than ever. Uh, but I would say fewer and fewer are actually studying uh, as a formal study history. And so the questions that, that come up are, are really about the nature of history. History is a concept. Uh, history is a way of thinking. History is the public memory of a society moving in time. And so it's with that concern for our fellow teachers, and Kane Academy is all about teachers. We love teaching. We love teachers. We love students. We love schools and academies. And 100% of our mission is devoted to helping humanities teachers do a great job. The, the chief impetus for this book was to help history teachers and other humanities teachers who have to confront questions regarding history to surmount the difficulties that our current culture poses. So, so uh, you would say that this then is, is a practical work. It's a practical value to the classroom teacher? Oh, yes, very much so. So I'm a history teacher. I, I've taught history almost my entire career 
as a middle school and high school teacher. I'm not an historian. I'm not a scholar. This book is really this teacher's attempt to deal with the kind of challenges that all of us as teachers face today. And so the, the answers that I propose in the book are meant to be very practical and very humane. They're, they're meant to be uh, humane in the sense that it's, it's a recovery of, of thinking historically, uh, in particular, about what it means to be human. And we learn a lot about ourselves by looking to the past and observing um, our predecessors. In fact, um, this is not a news flash. You know, the, the principal way that we as human beings learn is by observing. Uh, and the principal way we learn about ourselves is actually about is actually by observing other people. You get a glimpse of this in, in Plato's Republic when the difficulty of the question, whether it's better to live justly or unjustly, uh, grows and overwhelms the interlocutors to the point where Socrates says, OK, well, let's create a city in speech. Let's create something large, uh, although it's personalist. Uh, let's create something large that we can observe. And by observing and working through the order uh, and the, the devolution of the city and speech, we learn something about ourselves. We can look back inside ourselves um, more strategically and with greater insight. That's what we do in history. We look back at our predecessors and we learn about ourselves as human beings. We don't superimpose ourselves on the past. Rather, we let the past work on us. And it ends up being a tremendously illuminating light and uh, a great source of, of inspiration. It's also sober because humans in the past and in the present and humans in the future too all share a common condition and we're not perfect, we're imperfect and yet we're, we're also good and we do good things and we have the capacity to choose what is good and to move our lives as individuals and as uh, communities, as societies forward according to what is good and according to what is true. And history is a great boon to us. To study the past is, is a great light for us. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, you, you spoke uh, a, few, uh, a few moments ago about um, the, the, the present cultural moment uh, and about the, the cultural climate in which you see young history teachers needing to find their way. Uh, find find a way to approach the the subject of history, now, uh, learning how to think about it clearly and, and rightly, uh, so as to present it uh, well to their their students. Um, you you use the word a lot in the uh, early uh, a couple of times in the early pages of the book. You use the word crisis. Uh, you talk about history being in a crisis. Uh, you also write the following in the introduction about uh, contemporary America. You write, as a society, we are increasingly divided from our past, which is a significant part of why we are increasingly divided from one another. To put it another way, there is a real sense in which history has been forgotten. And having forgotten our past, we have forgotten ourselves. Uh, Andrew, what, what is it that we have forgotten? And, and what is this crisis uh, that you attempt to identify uh, in the introduction and the early chapters of the book? Well, the crisis is chiefly um, a crisis of division. And much of what it passes for popular history today uh, starts from the premise that we are divided. We're divided because we are uh, inherently and... and um, implacably defined by our classes, our races, and our genders. And the assumption that we have a common humanity, a common human condition, 
a common human nature, a common past, a common hope for the future. All these things are left to the side. This is a, a great fissure uh, over which we need to do what we can uh, to get. We really need to find a common ground so that we can uh, work together, live together, move together uh, in hope towards the future. The, the division, uh, we see evident in politics. We see it evident in uh, religion, in popular culture, in the, the very um, coarsened public discourse. And it almost doesn't pass as discourse anymore. And uh, largely this has to do with a failure uh, to remember our heritage. We have a very rich heritage uh, as Americans and as Westerners, and it's rooted deeply in antiquity. Uh, it, it made it, it's, uh, it's added onto and um, enriched by uh, later events. Uh, there's an expression of the great Western tradition here in America, and, uh, and of course we identify the beginning of that expression at the founding. But, but today there's an increased concern that, well, maybe the founding's not really worth considering. Maybe Western culture is not really worth considering. Uh, when we look to the human past, what do we find? Well, we find some egregious failures. Uh, in America, we rightly weigh and consider the, uh, the appalling record of slavery in America. And it is the singularly the most painful part of our past, the most troubling. And there's no getting around it. We, we, we have to study it. We have to understand it. it, it uh, it's undergirding all of our public discourse, all of our concern about what it means to be American and, and what it means to live together as fellow Americans. But the corresponding concern about that past is that, well, because of slavery, there's nothing good in the American founding. Because there's nothing good in the American founding, uh, what we really do is we end up isolating uh, egregious human failures, and we build some kind of historical understanding on the basis of that. And I, I hope I make the case successfully in the book that you really can't build a future together based on evils, based on failures. That is, every failure, every wrongdoing, every um, turn towards injustice is really measured by a good. You can't talk about injustice unless you understand what justice is. You can't talk about uh, slavery, really, unless you understand what freedom is. You can't talk about uh, any kind of human evil without talking about what it means to be a human. So I think the heart of the matter is the thing that we've forgotten the most is what does it mean to be a human? And I think history is a tremendous resource for us to rediscover that. And uh, I would say also there's a, another layer of what's been forgotten, and that is just the formal study of history itself. History is first and foremost observational. We turn to the past because it's different, not because it's like us. We don't super. We shouldn't superimpose ourselves on the past. We should really do everything we can to reconstruct events with all the related facts and details of the past in its pastness. We observe it just like we observe a fellow human being. We don't. We shouldn't stand in judgment of one another and expect every person to be just like us, right? So we we have to learn what it's like. Uh, we, we have to learn what the other person, uh, who the other person is what his or her uh, loves are, what kind of work they do in the world, what kind of creativity, what kind of aspirations they have. And it's not as if we're going around measuring everybody by our own desires and our own uh, successes. So first of all, history is observational. Unfortunately, today, there's a strong trend 
to make history a cause for change, a cause for action. That is, the reason you study history is so you know what to do now in the political realm. And uh, you can imagine then if you zero in exclusively or mainly on egregious failings like slavery or the displacement of natives, then uh, the call to action is going to be something in response to that as opposed to um, the alternative, which would be recognizing the totality of our society and the, and the, and the movement of our whole society in the past, uh, then our, our principal job is to preserve, to cultivate, to improve. Yes, of course, we recognize our failings, but we also recognize that without the ground on which we stand, which is recognizable in the founding, recognizable in the sacrifices of those who lay down their lives for us towards freedom, uh, recognizable in great statesmen like uh, Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr., who at two different crises in our national history rearticulated the meaning of the founding, the meaning of the national uh, longing for freedom, and uh, what kind of you know, what kind of steps we can take practically, legally, politically, in order to secure freedom for everyone. Uh, so these are the kinds of things I think that we've forgotten. Um, and in order to move forward together, in order to find a way to uh, live more uh, peaceably and in a way that's more united, I think we need, uh, we would do very well to uh, recover a sensibility about our past. Mm. Yeah, and I, I heard I heard so many things in, in what you just said about what we've forgotten, right? I heard you say we've forgotten about what it means to be human. Uh, Americans have forgotten what unites us, uh, and we've forgotten what's good about the American founding and, and about our history. And, and I mean, that, those things are not all coextensive, but there's a lot of overlap between between those three things, for sure. Um, when I was listening to you talk about um, the, the, the present conception of history as uh, rather than observational, as it uh, as it being a, a discipline that, that is uh, geared towards action uh, and activism or, or, or change. I couldn't help but think of a, a famous uh, or infamous sentence uh, written by Karl Marx in the 19th century. I think it's from the Theses on Feuerbach, where he writes about history, uh, excuse me, about philosophy. He says, uh, up until now, the philosophers have sought merely to comprehend the world, but the point now is to change it. Uh, mutatis mutandi, do you think that there's that same dynamic at work today in what passes for the discipline of history? Oh, I, I think it's it's very prevalent. And that passage from Marx that you cite, I think, is writ throughout uh, contemporary popular history. So that many students and, and even teachers and some practitioners of history, you know, formal historians, are chiefly in the game. Uh, to, to change things, not to understand things. So, so how big a deal is that? Well, uh, for one thing, it stands directly at odds at one of the chief sources of, of normative authority in our, our cultural history. That is the, the, the discovery of the mind or the discovery of the intellect or the birth of philosophy in ancient Greece, which gave to us the most amazing and fluent and productive culture of learning in the history of the world, no other culture uh, than the West has cultivated, uh, has you know furthered and developed and enriched um, the intrinsic des uh, desire to know and uh, the ability to understand reality, and uh, to turn our backs on understanding as the chief reason why we take up any field of study is to turn our backs on something deeply human 
and, and deeply rooted in our cultural history. Uh, I would say w- without that uh, self-criticism, without um, the, uh, the, the commitment to uh, understanding and knowledge and discovery, then it's really difficult to talk about the West. I mean, to upend that is really to upend one of the great loves, one of the great uh, impetuses that uh, lie at the, the foundation of Western mm. culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. You know, more than one astute commentator observed that uh, Marx's thesis uh, essentially amounts to the the end of philosophy, the end of 2,500 years of of Western philosophy. Do you think that um, this kind of activistic uh, uh, approach to history uh, essentially is is the same thing? That's a rupture. It's it's a break from the, the discipline of history as the West has understood it for the last 2,500 years since Herodotus. Well, I think that's a I think that's a plausible interpretation. I, I like to come back to a very practical historical example of the the unity of our existence as a society. And here I'm going to talk about being an American and being a Westerner. Uh, if, if you you noted in my my book that a, a very important um, standard for me to follow is Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I find him most remarkable because. He stares right into the darkest eye of American history, and that is slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws, lynchings, and, of course, uh, his own suffering, the suffering of his fellow uh, participants in the civil rights movement. What's remarkable about King is he doesn't dismiss America nor the American founding, even though he never... Uh, flags from keeping our eye on those terrible failings. Rather, uh, he has a very classical mind, a very liberal mind, I would say. Uh, This is what he does. If you look at his letter from a Birmingham jail, he writes um, a very powerful uh, argument against uh, the legitimacy of laws that keep segregation in place. And the way he does that is by invoking the natural law writings of the two great medieval theologians, some people say the great Catholic theologians, Augustine and Aquinas. And then he pulls them up and lets their light shine on the American founding. And he, he pulls up from the American founding the writings of slaveholders, Thomas Jefferson, the chief author of the Declaration of Independence, and uh, James Madison, uh, the chief author of the Constitution. And here now I'm, I'm shifting into his great speech, uh, the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, so he's invoking the founding there. And he does that in 1863, 100 years after uh, Abraham Lincoln invoked the founding at the, in the, his iconic speech, uh, the Gettysburg Address. Uh, in both occasions, in the letter from Birmingham jail and in the I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King is thinking historically. And he's thinking about the whole of American society and the whole of Western society. And he pulls from the Bible um, a biblical image of the human person and finds there um, a beautiful and powerful articulation of of our dignity. He pulls from the natural law of the medieval writers um, a, um, a powerful critique of illegitimate law. And he pulls from the founding the core aspiration that abides uh, and prevails across the history of the United States, and it's the, the aspiration to freedom and equality. And he says, if we're going to be the country we should be, 
then we need to live according to the aspiration that was there from the beginning. And we need to find practical, legal, political ways to live according to that. We don't throw America out. We don't throw the founding out. We don't throw Western culture out. Rather, you know, he turns to sources that he himself did not create, but he utilized them to regroup around a better moment and a better future uh, for America. So I, I, I looked at King and I think this is, this is a remarkable exercise that he engaged in because he might well have dismissed the whole kit and caboodle precisely because of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow laws, lynchings, and the like. But instead, he says, no, we're, we're all in this together. And when he, when he spoke, when he preached at churches, when he, um, when he gave his public speeches, when he wrote uh, to his fellow ministers, well, in all these occasions, he uh, did a remarkable job in pulling the American people together. And instead of dividing us, he brought us together uh, towards a unified action. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah, I, I thought that um, your, your citing uh, of King uh, throughout the book um, was a, how should I put it, a pleasant surprise, right? King's not a historian. Uh, Martin Luther King is not the first person I think of as offering a, a vision of how to think about history. And yet, I think you convincingly articulate he has an implicit vision of history through his example, uh, through his speeches, through his, well, here it is again, activism. And yet it's an activism that's informed by history, uh, not a history that's informed by activism, uh, as we might say that uh, the, the, the present uh, approaches to history perhaps uh, might be yeah. as well. So, yeah, I really appreciated the, uh, the new interpretation uh, of Martin Luther King Jr. as an example uh, of a, a wholesome and whole uh, way to think about history. You use the word liberal uh, to describe the way that King thinks about history, that his is a, a liberal view. You develop a definition of the right way to think about history as, uh, in the same term, liberal. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? What is, what is the liberal approach to history? I use liberal there in its root sense, and that is uh, free or freedom. And I I have in mind uh, the great tradition of learning called liberal education. Um, Liberal there or freedom there means uh, to be a a person who is free and to be free from undue constraints, external constraints, but more importantly, to be free internally, free intellectually, uh, spiritually free, morally free. Uh, The great tradition of classical freedom uh, really holds out three principal branches of freedom. The first is uh, to know the truth is to to be free, right? To be free from unexamined opinion, uh, from ideology, uh, from anything that would obscure reality to us. So to live by the truth is really to live freely. And all of us have a desire to know and all of us have a capacity to know. So we should preserve that in one another. It's, It's fundamental to our condition and to our nature. Uh, Secondly, to be free is to live by noble purpose. All of us have to make uh, choices about how we we govern our individual lives and how we govern our communities and our society as a whole. So how do we do that collectively? And of course, the stakes are very high in in a society like ours, um, a populist government, uh, a government of and for and by the people, as Lincoln would say. These are high stakes relatively new in in human history to have a republic like ours that has such a strong democratic component and to do so in such a diverse culture where we don't have one univocal religion, 
where there are lots of different races, lots of different people of uh, or lots of different economic backgrounds. Uh, nowhere in history have we ever had such a various society as America. So the stakes are very high. To get that job done is, is really uh, very difficult. The only way we're going to get that done is if we all agree to some sense of noble purpose, some vision of what it means to be human, uh, to recognize each other's dignity, uh, some uh, concept of justice, and uh, to, to be really committed to that and to, to order our lives according to it. And thirdly, uh, the great notion of freedom has to do with generosity. That is, how do we give of ourselves to one another, even sacrificially? And when we look at the history of America and our, our, our most important moments, what happens? Well, at the founding, the, the founders themselves risked their lives and their fortunes for the sake of freedom. Uh, during the Civil War, um, you know, the estimates now are we're, we're pushing close to 800,000 lives were lost uh, for the sake of national union and for the sake of emancipation. Uh, the war didn't start off as a war to end slavery, but it did become a war to end slavery. And nowhere in the history of the world has a war ever been fought to end slavery as it has in the United States. So the, the American uh, black slaves paid the first awful, awful price of American slavery. Uh, all those who died uh, in the war paid the second great price. And when, when Lincoln reveres the dead, uh, although he says we really can't do anything to revere them because they've already you know, poured out uh, the, the full measure, the last full measure uh, of their, uh, their humanity, their devotion to, to others. Uh, but when he remembers them and he asks us to remember them and Lincoln um, uh, you know, his words are remembered by Martin Luther King Jr. a hundred years later. Uh, he's basically saying, look, there, there's no way for us to live except from the sacrificial gift of life that others have laid down for us. Uh, and we're reminded is not all of us have to go to war. Not all of us have to face down, um, you know, weapons and, and uh, you know, uh, death on the battlefield. But all of us do have to face down our responsibilities and uh, how we live uh, for one another is absolutely dead center to what it means to be a human being. So these, these are the kinds of expressions of freedom that I have in mind. A liberal education is an education to freedom. We're not born free in that sense. We're born with free will, but we're not born in the full sense of freedom to live by the truth, noble purpose, and generosity. We have to be educated by our families, our community, uh, our formal education towards those those great uh, excellences, those great completions of, of what it means to be a human person. History then plays a role in the humanities. The core of what it means to be a human is to be free. And the humanities are really uh, part and parcel of our education to freedom. So I'm, I'm trying to reposition history as as right at the center of or the heart of an education to freedom. That's what I mean by liberal. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. You, you also write that... Um, one of the key aspects of, of a liberal approach to history is that it is sympathetic. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? What does it mean to say that uh, a liberal approach to history has a sympathetic attitude towards the past? Right. So there, there's a, a strong tendency today to look at the past moralistically or anachronistically. So a number of people would look back at the American founding and say, well, um, you know, at the founding... Slaves were not freed. 
Uh, women were not um, equal, uh, didn't have equal status. Um, there wasn't, um, say, an even distribution of goods and, and that kind of critique. But the, the fact of the matter is there's no revolution uh, in the late 18th century that could live up to those, uh, those charges of, of universal equality and, and uh, perfect justice. We today have a very strong sensibility about individual freedom, and life today is enormously better for uh, minorities, uh, for women, uh, for, for all sorts of members of our society than it was, uh, say, 250 years ago. But we ought not look back and judge them. We shouldn't be moralistic, but rather we should look back at the past in its pastness and, and recognize that these are human beings working out their lives to the best of their ability. And we should try to understand what their loves are, uh, what kind of courage did they exemplify in, in facing down life's challenges? What kind of work did they do? What kind of creativity uh, did they demonstrate in uh, shaping the world around them and in, in, um, developing and furthering the culture that they handed down to us? So we should, sympathy um, impels us to look at people in the condition that we share but also to, to hold in our memory that we're not all the same. We're not all identical. And, and that's part of the beauty of life. It's part of the wonder of life that, that we share a lot in common with people who are very different from us. America at its best is a tremendous tribute to uh, people living in unity when at the same time they're very different from one another. Sympathy, of course, means a couple of different things. One, it means uh, to suffer with. So we look to the past and you know, we should recognize that people really did uh, suffer, and we should we should pay attention to that and study it very hard. And sympathy also means to have a natural affinity for all things genuinely human. Uh, to study history is is to engage in something that needs to be very complete. The, one of the worst things that happens is when we uh, reduce history or events to less than what they are, to take them out of their context, to isolate them. And then rework uh, historical narratives according to this, uh, you know, re- reduced set of events. So the sympathy there is is both a humane inclination of, of of ourselves as human beings towards our predecessors as human beings. It's also um, a discipline or um, a check on the inclination to judge, to moralize, to, to be anachronistic. Well, and that leads me right to uh, uh, another question I wanted to ask. Uh, As opposed to the liberal view of history, you write in the book about something that you call fragmentary history. Uh, And you you invoke the the concept of context or uh, ripping things out of context as uh, sort of the underlying essence of of what it means to practice history in a fragmentary way. Uh, Could you elaborate on that a little bit? What, What are the characteristics of that thing which is opposed to liberal history, fragmentary history. Yeah, fragmentary history, again, would uh, isolate events uh, from their broader context and then obscure related events, related facts and details in order to uh, uh, retell the story of the past. For example, uh, in uh, when we talk about education today, there's a national debate about what, what constitutes a good education and what con- constitutes a good education towards being an American. S- some uh, writers today, some historians would look back 
and say, okay, we, we need to find evidence for our position in the past. And so they'll cull from this era or that era and uh, build their case. So they might look at the founding and say, well, what we're seeing in the founding is sort of a germ of contemporary universal education and universal public education at that. I'm in favor of universal public education or you know, the, at least universal access. I think we should have you know, private schools too. But when we look at the American founding, what we find is that there were hardly any schools in the colonial era, and um, almost everyone was what we call homeschooled. And parents uh, taught their children or they hired tutors to come into the house. Uh, the education had, was um, weaved uh, to or wed to uh, vocational uh, and industrial arts, uh, farming, uh, smithing, things like that. And then uh, another layer had to do with one's uh, rather intensive tie to the local church. And one's sensibility about being a member of a civic community was largely informed by that kind of thing. So when we look at that, we go, wow, that's really different. That, that kind of um, strong intersection between uh, education, family, uh, work, in church, in turn, and and in turn, uh, civic responsibility. That is very different from what we see today, where we we tend to um, uh, kind of separate those things out, and almost you know just hardly any children in America have their uh, regular uh, formal education tied to vocational and industrial education. Uh, we we tend to uh, draw a stronger line between. Um, our civic life and our religious life uh, here in, in America today. So things are really different. So if we want to understand the role of education in American society. The first thing we would do is observe the past for what it is and to, to see how the, the first uh, balance or configuration of the relationship between education and civic life actually uh, took hold in America. That would be a good example of of kind of keeping a check on on uh, taking things out of isolation. Another one that's maybe more damaging, uh, or certainly more damaging, is the the um, is the trend today in uh, recalling the history of slavery. We have to study the history of slavery. There's no getting around it. But sometimes that history is uh, taken out of context. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes uh, historians or public officials or journalists or teachers or uh, public figures uh, won't tell the full story. Uh, slavery, uh, uh, you know, was not isolated to America. And uh, in fact, uh, at least a full millennium preceding the American founding or preceding 1619, there was a slave trade in what we would call the, the Western world. Uh, it certainly preceded us by a century uh, among the Brits. Um, and uh, it, uh, well after emancipation and abolition, uh, the African slave trade was continued by Arabs uh, north of the, um, uh, the countries, the, the kingdoms in Africa that are predominantly black. Uh, another part of the story is that uh, slavery is uh, almost entirely gone in the Western world, but it's quite prevalent in the non-Western world today. And that's a story that you know sometimes the critics of America and the West don't want to tell because it kind of belies the idea that you know because there was slavery um, we sort of generally dismiss America or because uh, in the name of religion in the name of, of certain philosophical schools of thought you know some 
members of society were considered to be suitable or more naturally enslaved, then we dismiss all of the West. Whereas uh, the West and America have proven to be able to be self-critical and to look at our failings and to move beyond them by not just critiquing them, but by also finding ways to to build a culture of freedom for everyone in society and, uh, and not just for those who, who uh, say, once owned slaves or for those who once made the case that slavery was somehow uh, justifiable. I guess a third uh, great example, um, one that concerns me a lot, uh, has to do with the people's history of the United States by Howard oh, Zinn. Oh, Howard Zinn. Oh, yeah. yeah. Millions yeah. of copies of that book in, in, uh, in print. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm particularly worried by the, the major premise of Zinn. Zinn says uh, in several spots, especially in the, in the first part of the book, that uh, there is no such thing as a, a, a real political community, a, a whole society uh, in time. Rather, you only have classes, races, and genders. And you have the exploiters of those groups, and you have the exploited among those groups. And then he retells uh, the history of the United States according to the experiences of the exploited. And I think that is uh, singularly one of the, the most damaging uh, uh, points of thought in contemporary history that the beginning of historical reflection is somehow the division between human beings. Uh, so, you know, in the liberal approach to history, we start from the fundamental acknowledgement that we're all human beings. And that's why we should observe one another, we should be sympathetic to one another, we should cherish each other's. Uh, the condition that we you know, share with one another. We should cherish each other's dignity. Uh, we should move society forward uh, according to what is good uh, intrinsically in each human being and in, in, in whatever is best in our society. We should build from it and not from you know, what, is, uh, what are our failings or what is uh, egregiously uh, the evils of our past. Uh, but Zen, Zen has done a lot of damage because he's zeroed in on the... Um, and not always truthfully, by the way. And uh, there, there are much better historical minds than mine that have, that have really taken him to task on the falsehoods that are weaved into his text. But my, my main concern that I touch on in um, History Forgotten and Remembered is that part of thinking historically is to think about the unity of the society in time. History is a, a concept of unity like nature and being. It helps us get our arms and our heads around the whole of things. And the whole of a society is moving in time. That's why we're connected. Uh, we of the past, we of the present, and we of the future. Uh, this is one society, one people. Uh, even though generations die and, uh, you know, and we, the living, look back on them and say, wow, they're really different from us. Still, we're all part of one society moving in time, say in America or in the West as a whole. Not so with Zen. Zen assumes a, a fundamental division. And um, that, I think, is one of the most damaging things that we're seeing in popular history today. That's what I mean by fragmentary. It, it not only isolates events, which, it, you know, in order to fr it takes things out into fragments, it's also fragmentary in its social impact. That it, it, it uh, the, um, a synonym there with fr fragmentation would be division, you know, making us uh, at odds with one another implacably. And so there's really no there's no consideration of, of our of America as a whole. It's only a consideration of the exploited among um, 
implacably divided races, genders, and uh, classes. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah, Zinn starts with a denial of the whole. Uh, it's it's it pretty pretty sweeping, pretty axiomatic for for him. Um, you know, some might look at Zinn and say, well, you know, his exclusive focus on oppression and domination and minority groups. But the answer to that is uh, is a history of America that really minimizes or downplays those kinds of things. Someone might say, well, a, a conservative patriotic history of America is the answer to Zinn. But you wouldn't say so, right? You would say that the liberal approach to history is the answer to Zinn. Um, yeah, the, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah the yeah, context right. matters. What is the liberal approach to history? How, yeah. how does it answer Zinn? Well, it answers Zinn by taking, uh, say in the case of slavery, both slavery and the American ideals at the founding seriously. Uh, there's a beautiful book called uh, American Freedom, American Slavery by the late Edmund Morgan, who was one of Yale's longstanding uh, great historians of the American founding, the uh, colonial era, uh, the development of the republic. And he says you can't get around the fact that the founders, especially in the South, relied in, in no small measure on an economy that was built on slavery. But you can't get around the fact that they articulated a vision of our humanity, a vision of a, of a free society that became very compelling to men like uh, Frederick Douglass uh, and Martin Luther King Jr., uh, both you know, former slaves and descendants of, of former slaves, who said, yes, we want what the founders aspired to. We want the freedom that they uh, fought for uh, and were willing to die for when they declared independence from an increasingly tyrannical Great Britain. Uh, the, the, the longing for freedom resonates with every kind of American. So, uh, uh, you know, women who, who want more opportunities for education, uh, for creativity, for, for uh, making their way in the world, for making a contribution to the public order, uh, natives who were displaced from their lands, uh, black Americans, uh, formerly slaves, and then their descendants. Uh, they, 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 workers of all kinds, immigrants from every country in the world. Uh, every single one of these kinds of Americans love freedom. They long for freedom. And uh, when, when the founders say that it's a self-evident truth that we're all created equal, uh, that we and, and when they um, built the country with the aspiration for universal freedom, this is this is a deep, humane uh, longing, a deep, humane truth about what it means uh, to live together. So, um, so I'm much more interested in recalling those, remembering those experiences as foundational both to our country and to our our uh, Western heritage, but but. The starting point is that it's experiential. It's that every human being longs to be free. And we, we offer to our students the best education, if it's an education that gives them literature and history and art that um, stirs in them the, the light of that freedom, that reminds them of what it means to be a human being because articulated and imaginative and expository and historical literature are the stories and the images and the um, the concepts of our humanity 
that are most conducive to what it means to live by the truth, to live by noble purpose, and to live by generosity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I hear you saying, right, is that the, the liberal approach to history has room for all of the things that Howard Zinn wants to write about. There is room in a liberal approach to history for the story of bondage and oppressions uh, of various sorts. But the liberal view of history is open to much more than just that. Uh, among other things, what I heard you saying there is that the, the, the liberal approach to history gives some explanation for where this longing for freedom comes from. Uh, whereas, you know, Zinn just sort of seems to take it as axiomatic that the oppressed uh, are yearning to shake off their chains. Uh, but where do they get that desire from? And why is it so powerful in the West? Well, the liberal historian asks those kinds of questions and is open to the sources in a way that the fragmentary historian, a la uh, Howard Zinn, is, is not. Uh, and your example of Frederick Douglass is, is a great one, right? Douglas doesn't call for liberation uh, in, in sort of an ahistorical, uh, self-created way. He cites the American founding. Uh, and you quote him in the, in the book as, uh, what is it? You call, uh, he calls the Constitution a, a glorious document of freedom. I can't remember exactly what the, what the words are, you know. Um, uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah, fascinating how the liberal approach to history includes everything that's important to Zinn. Let, let me but, just, uh, I'd, I'd like to actually quote yeah. uh, Frederick Douglass as, oh, as yes. I did in, in the, uh, the beginning of chapter 10. This is the chapter called The Purposeful Past. And uh, Douglass commenting or responding to the Dred Scott case, which terribly reduced um, black Americans to less than their, their full human personhood. But he, he didn't despair. This is what he said. He said, I have uh, I base my sense of the certain overthrow of slavery in part upon the nature of the American government, the Constitution, the tendencies of the age, and the character of the American people. I know of no soil better adapted to the growth of reform than American soil. I know of no country where the conditions for affecting great changes in the settled order of things for the development of right ideas of liberty and humanity are more favorable than here in these United States. Now, note what he's saying there. He's not saying, um, he's neither saying that things are impossibly bad, nor is he saying that uh, things are inevitable. He's saying that reform is needed. He's saying change is needed in the right direction. But he's saying that the soil is good, that the, the foundation is good. The, the reality of, of who we are as Americans is fundamentally good so that we can, um, we can move the country forward uh, according to what is true about our founding, about what is good about the American people, and what is uh, efficacious about our practices in law and politics. Mm. Uh, I'd love to wrap up kind of on that theme, uh, on the theme of hope. Uh, and, and you invoke the concept of hope. You talk about it uh, near the end of the book, and, and you, you just cited Douglas as an example of someone who takes a hopeful view uh, of American history, not a fatalistic view, uh, but, a, but a hopeful view. Could you just say a few, few closing words for us about the relationship of history and hope? Yes, I, I think that um, history, of course, is, is about the past. The study of history is really the study of the past. But the fact of the matter is, 
Our historical existence is whole, and that includes the past, the present, and the future. Now, it's strange to say that because the past is gone. It doesn't exist. As soon as I say now, whoosh, it slips right by. It's like Heraclitus' river. It's forever changing. It's also the case that the future does not yet exist, and yet the past and the future pull very strongly on us. And I think about, about hope. So why do we hope for the future? Why do we lean in towards the future and, and long for it? And I think it has to do with, the, with the, something deeply humane. To live historically is to live in between two great acts of giving. The, our predecessors have given us our existence. The, we, we are where we are, what we are, and, and we have what we have and the opportunities and the freedoms because others have, have uh, plowed that ground. They, they've, they've made those roads. They, they built the, the, the house in which we dwell. It's also the case, and, and so, you know, I, I am, as I, I wrote the book, I, I rediscovered a kind of uh, reverence for those who came before us. I'm so grateful for that. And I, I, maybe that's another thing I might write a, a, a chapter on at some point if I were to do another edition is, is the, uh, the gratitude that we all ought to have for the existence that we have. It's fundamentally good. And the only way to move forward is to recognize that goodness and to improve things the, the, according to, to what is truly good. The, on the other side of things, you know, uh, just as our predecessors anticipated us, I think that we anticipate those who have not yet been born. And someday, through their own historical exercises, through their public memory, through institutions, through formal studies of history, they too will remember us. And I, I, I sincerely hope that they will remember us um, with gratitude. And they will look to us and, and look to see how we today cultivate, maintain, preserve, and improve the order of things so that those who come after us uh, have a good life. Um, they have true freedom. They, they can go to schools and academies that uh, teach them the truth. They can uh, find in the community that we leave them behind, the culture we leave behind, uh, a great um, context for nobility, for vision, for purpose, and that they will see that generations before them uh, sacrificially gave of themselves so that they could live and that they in turn will not only be grateful, but they'll be inspired to, to, to lay down their lives for their neighbor. And that seems to me uh, a very good vision. And if we live by it, I think it's a great source of encouragement uh, towards a future together. Yeah, beautiful image. The the twin poles of gratitude towards the past and and hope for the for the future. Um, and on that note, uh, we'll conclude. Andrew Zwerneman, uh, author of History Forgotten and Remembered, Kane Academy co-founder and president. Thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it very much, and I, I am very grateful for the opportunity to, to speak with you today. enjoyed this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen desells Wernemann. This is Andrew Ellison, your host. For all of us at Cana Academy, thanks for listening to Sources. <laughs>